You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Land of Legacy podcast. This is Adam Keith and Matt Dye. We've got a special guest for you today. Kip Adams from QDMA is here. Matt, go ahead and kind of address what we're going to be covering in this podcast. 10-4. I've been looking forward to this podcast for, for a couple weeks now and um, talked with Kip on the phone um, a few weeks ago and really just got excited about what he has to offer and some information. that I don't know if a lot of people are really – um, know about Kip and his family tradition, and he's got great information versus um, deer hunting and multi-use properties. And I say multi-use, talking cattle farms. And if you've been listening, you know Adam and I have grown up on cattle farms and managed our hunting operation around cattle. And um, Kip is very, very knowledgeable about that, and we want to talk to him about his operation. And um, Kip, are you there? Are you ready? I'm here. Good morning, guys. Thank Good. you for having me. Good morning. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, and and uh, we're very very excited. But first, Adam's got one topic he wants to he wants to ask you about. Um, as we get started, it's kind of new and fresh here locally. This is kind of the buzz right now in Missouri. Uh, as you probably saw, the Missouri Department of Conservation has expanded their CWD zones, and by that they've added some southern counties, and removed any chance that you can legally put out mineral or food-based attractions. And I think a lot of people, the first question is why. Could you answer that question for us? Sure. There's a, in the disease world, one of the ways that we know that we can, can help minimize spread of a disease is to reduce congregation of deer, and particularly congregation of deer where they are going to be swapping spit, and, uh, you know, either nose-to-nose contact or feeding in exactly the same spot. And by that, I don't mean like in a food plot where they're kind of in the same general area, like the exact spot where we use minerals or, or supplemental feed or whatever. So the disease experts will tell you, hey, this is one of the ways to, to keep this disease from spreading. And not just CWD, but lots of diseases, you know, tuberculosis and, uh, and a whole host of others. So uh, some of the initial research in northeast Michigan where they've had TB for a long time, shows that some of those, uh, at least in the case of TB, those organisms can stay in that soil you know, for months and then. So even deer coming back to that mineral site or that feed site you know, can then be you know, infected with a disease. So it's not ex- directly transferable to CWD, but at least the, the threat is there because we know that CWD prions can be swapped through saliva, blood, urine, feces, etc., which you tend to have a lot more of that stuff you know, or at least the urine, saliva, and feces around feed sites, around mineral sites. So there's a lot of uh, disease folks and managers that then don't allow you to use those anymore to try to reduce the spread. Uh, I feel the pain for, for your guys or your buddies there in southwest Missouri. Uh, you know, I'm in northern Pennsylvania. Um, I don't supplementally feed. Um, I, I feed my deer through all the habitat work that we do. But I do use minerals, and, uh, and I have for years and years and years. And, uh, and I use them, you know, to conduct camera surveys. Um, actually, I will put corn on the ground for, for two weeks a year during my camera survey. 
But uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always nervous when the CWD results come out in Pennsylvania as well, afraid that my area is going to be positive so that I, I lose the ability to, to do that survey. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the premise behind it, and, man, I, I feel the pain. Yeah, so a lot of people, that's, that's how they get a lot of pictures. Do you have any tips or tricks? Uh, I, we're kind of scratching our heads of, of, got, of ways for guys to get pictures with the same, probably not the same degree. I don't know if that will ever happen, but ways you can monitor your deer herd without the minerals and the attractions with your cameras. Well, right now, um, you know, there's enough states that, that have CWD that do not allow feeding that uh, there's a lot of people out there today doing those camera surveys using, you know, heavily used trails, food plots, water holes, or putting in water sources to, to get pictures. Um, do they work? Sure, those things work. They don't work nearly as well as, as a baited camera site, uh, as you guys are well aware. Right. Um, one little bit of bright spot, though, is uh, Dr. Carl Miller and, and his folks uh, from the University of Georgia have a study going on right now looking at trying to develop a methodology for non-baited camera surveys. Mm. And uh, in large part, just because there's so many people that can't use a baited camera survey anymore. And uh, they're not finished with it yet, but the preliminary results are extremely positive. Because what they're doing is they're doing a non-baited survey and then also doing a baited survey, like right there, so they oh, can yeah. compare results between the two and then tweak how they do the non-baited to make it work. So you have to do it a little more than two weeks, like you do mm-hmm. the baited survey. And there's some differences there, but uh, Carl said, told me that he is getting some very positive results in something that they feel is going to be applicable to anybody in the Whitetails range, you know, regardless if you can bait or not. So hopefully uh, we'll know something uh, on that survey within the next year that will finish up and, and be published. And uh, I'm sure that we'll have you know, information about it in Quality Whitetails because that's a huge benefit for a lot of people out there. Yeah, that is extremely um, exciting and encouraging for for thousands of hunters out there who are looking to stay on top of their deer herd get the numbers and um it's just a, it's a new way everyone loves new things out there it's a change and, i think yeah. a lot of people aren't ready for or not happy about but i think it's it, as matt and i talk about this a lot i think it it will motivate people to do more habitat work um mm-hmm. if you can't put out a feeder you may go put out a food plot and then you're going to put out a food plot and maybe you're going to start doing some timber stand improvement and some old field management and i maybe it's it turns us in a direction that a lot of guys weren't ready for, but it may be best thing for, for everything. I hope so. Uh, there's not many other benefits of CWD, so uh, maybe if they can put some people to do some more habitat work, that'll be uh, the one bright spot. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, Kip, let's, now that we, that was for the guys uh, mainly in Missouri, I guess in other CWD states that are a little stressed out about the regulation changes and everything like that. Let's go ahead now, and we've got a, a bigger topic we want to cover today, but before we do that, can you just go ahead and let our audience know your position and, I guess, background with QDMA? Sure. Uh, I'm a certified wildlife biologist, and I am QDMA's Director of Education and Outreach. And, uh, and what that means essentially is I oversee our education and outreach program, which we call the REACH program. Uh, REACH is an acronym that stands for Research, Educate, Advocate, Certify, and Hunt, uh, which is our hunting heritage or our youth program. So all of QMA's mission goals fall to within uh, that REACH program. And uh, I'm extremely fortunate to get to oversee that and, and have my hands in uh, a whole bunch of different projects, uh, deer and, and habitat and, and hunter-related. Gotcha. And so how did you, I guess, through your education, get to a point um, to be employed by QDMA? For those people who want kind of that outdoor industry job, love whitetails, what can they do education-wise to get to a, a, a position where they're working outside all the time with deer? Can you talk about that? Sure. And uh, I'm very fortunate to, to be with QDMA and do what I do uh, when I grew up, there was, you know, extremely few wildlife-related careers, and uh, my whole plan was, uh, you know, I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. I knew that from an early age, and uh, it was really for a state or federal agency. That was mm-hmm. it. So uh, when I came out of graduate school, um, the only place that I got a job was for the state of Florida. Right. So uh, I moved to Florida, and being from the north, that was a huge switch. Culture shock. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that really, really was uh, so I went to school, I got my graduate degree, I mean my undergraduate from Penn State, then I went to New University of Hampshire for my graduate degree, so uh, Florida was a long, long way from New Hampshire. <laughs> what uh, part of Florida were you in? I was in Central Florida. Okay. So uh, I was by below Orlando, 
Um, this is uh, the, the mid-90s, and at that point, the entire area I was in was still all historic cattle ranches mm-hmm. and citrus groves. Yep. So uh, it, was a, it was a great place to work. It, was a, it did me a world of good as an, an aspiring deer biologist to learn, you know, different plants of deer eat, see the different habitat. But most importantly, it taught me a different hunting culture, you right. know, about how people view deer and how they hunted deer. And uh, so that, that, more than anything else, really, really impressed upon me, uh, you know, the need to, to work with hunters and to understand, you know, local traditions and local culture if you want to be successful at managing deer. So uh, anyway, I was there. I ended up going back to New Hampshire. I became New Hampshire Fishing Games Deer and Bear Project Leader. And then while I was in New Hampshire, I got a letter from QDMA. And I had never heard of the organization. They had sent a, a card out to every state's deer project leader offering some um, a discount on some of the educational materials they, mm-hmm. they had. And uh, as soon as I saw that, I thought, I went to the website, I looked at about them, and I had never heard of them. I joined the organization immediately. That was in 1999. I thought, this is exactly what we need, you know, for deer hunters. I became a member, and then the first position that QDMA hired in the Northeast uh, was a regional director position in Pennsylvania. And uh, I was looking to get back to Pennsylvania anyway. Um, I was, it was tiring of state government, um, so uh, I was a QDMA member for a couple of years, really thought highly of the organization so when i saw that posting i said this is for me and mm-hmm. uh, that was in 2002 and uh so uh the rest is history and it has been a tremendous ride with qdma i, I couldn't be happier that's awesome and, and congratulations for that and be able to to get back home and and continue working with deer and just uh staying diligent there and i think that's that's a, a big thing for a lot of people you know who are whether it's someone getting out of high school going into college and and knowing that there's that there's many years of of potential school education and a working career to potentially get to where you want to be but all that the ride itself um, and the knowledge gained um, is definitely part of the process so um, I guess now we're going to transition into some of your your hunting heritage and and where you kind of got started and um, what that looked like for you at a younger age. All right. Um, I grew up, as I said, in northern Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania is you know, big deer hunting state. Um, many of our schools are still closed, opening day of deer season, um, so that the teachers and the students can go hunting. So uh, lots of hunters, you know, historically very high deer herds with a, with a deer camp uh, culture. So uh, where I grew up, we had a camp on our farm that, uh, you know, I remember my dad and all of his hunting, but he's going, and as a little kid, you know, I just craved the opportunity for someday to be able to go there, you know, hunting. Uh, the camp was very near where we grew up, so I was there on a, a very regular basis. You know, we had cows on the property, so uh, but I couldn't go there during deer season because that was where the adults were. And uh, so I just grew up knowing that that was the coolest place on earth, and that two weeks uh, of our buck season in the fall was the coolest two weeks of the whole entire year. So uh, you couldn't at that point, you couldn't hunt in Pennsylvania until you were 12 years old. But when I turned 11, my dad let me go to deer camp that year with him just to, you know, be a part of the whole thing. And, uh, oh, my gosh, it was, it was just absolutely incredible. I was hooked way before that. But uh, if I had been, that certainly would have solidified it for me. So uh, I grew up hunting where you where there was a lot of drive hunting. So, you know, you hunted together. You worked to help other people get their deer. When they did, you helped them get the deer out of the woods. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of camaraderie. It was, you know, a lot of great cooking and fun times and card games at camp. And, um, you know, just the time of the year that everybody at camp looked forward to so much, certainly for the deer hunting end, but also just to be together with those other guys. So uh, that, that's what deer season to this day means to me. Uh, I could have the best place in the world to hunt, but if I was by myself there hunting it, it wouldn't mean nearly as much mm-hmm. as if I could be at some place you know, sharing that with other guys in camp. Um, I, I obviously love deer and deer hunting. Uh, you know, that deer camp mentality really, really resonates with me. Very cool. That, that There's so much about what you just said that is very relatable for me. That's kind of how I got the... Uh, start in deer hunting one thing you said was how you couldn't hunt until you were 12 years old that was that was the same case for me in missouri and uh, just curious is there anything you were hunting before then that got you really interested in stepping up to deer hunting were you chasing squirrels quail anything like that yeah well legally you couldn't hunt anything in pennsylvania until you were 12 
Wow. But, uh, I think the statute of limitations is probably gone now. Uh, my dad had me hunting squirrels uh, and grouse uh, when I was nine and rabbits. And, uh, and in his view, you know, we were working on the farm. That stuff was there. I had shot, you know, a shotgun and, and uh, 22s for years before that. So uh, in his mind, uh, 12 was way too long to wait. And uh, by gosh, it was on our place. And uh, he was with me, so we were safe. He was taking me. I just couldn't tell anybody at school. <laughs> that was the hardest part. <laughs> the rabbit or grass and then not be able to tell anybody other than uh, my parents or my mom or my grandparents. That's painful. So, uh, you know, and I think that's the, the perfect way, not to break the rules, but to smart to start with a small game. And, uh, you know, that's certainly what I started. My kids, at, fortunately in Pennsylvania now, we have a mentored youth program where they can go. There is no minimum age. You can take them uh, when, when you think they are ready. Um, so small game is by far the way to start. And actually at QDMA, many people are surprised, you know, that we strongly tell or encourage people to start a small game, that, that deer hunting is not the first thing that kids should start with. Right. You know, they should learn to with squirrels or doves or you know rabbits or whatever because that's where you learn you know woodsmanship skills and you know and practice hunter safety skills with the with your gun and and all that. So uh, yeah, so I did start a little earlier than twelve. Uh, I guess uh, illegally. That that's the thing for me. You know, when I think back as a as a kid before I was old enough to go deer hunting was I was hunting quail, rabbits, squirrels, and for me. I looking back at how, and even today, how much <laughs> trouble I have with sitting still, and it was way worse, I guess, as a kid. And if I would have started out deer hunting, it would have been a little more difficult for me to get hooked on hunting, sitting down, being quiet, cold, can't move, versus running around behind Grandpa, not even carrying a gun, just kicking up squirrels, watching, the, and kicking up quail, and watching the bird dogs work. That was what got me hooked on the outdoors. So. Yeah, I think uh, we have very similar backgrounds, even from PA all the way down to Missouri. Well, and then that small game, you know, even besides the excitement, you know, and you're able to move. My daughter's a perfect example, and she was, I guess, eight years old, I think, maybe the first squirrel hunt I took her on. Well, they're 22. That day, she shot 19 times. <laughs> And we brought exactly zero squirrels home. <laughs> so in addition to the 19 times she shot, that provided 19 you know, practice opportunities, uh -huh. 19 safety opportunities. There was probably another dozen or two dozen times where we were ready to shoot and then just couldn't quite shoot. So I don't know, a couple of hours we were out that day. It was just a phenomenal day. There were squirrels everywhere. But over a two-hour period, she got more practice being a hunter than – you know, if you started with deer, then most kids would, you know, in five years. Sure, so, yeah. So, yeah, I'm a big, big advocate of starting a small game. Awesome. You know, one thing you said growing up hunting, deer camp, You and this is kind of today's main topic, and I, I don't know, I'm not sure. I've heard you speak a lot, Kip, and I haven't heard you cover, most of the time you're covering deer and everything, but I'm not sure I've heard you touch much on, on this topic and it's something that I think a lot of our, especially a lot of our clients deal with, um, and it's multi-use properties. And when you say that, it, you think of you're hunting on your uncle's farm or grandpa's farm, your dad's farm, and he's got cows and you're a wildlife guy. And you talked about how your family farm growing up had cattle on it. Can you kind of discuss the operation that was going down at that time? Sure. I grew up uh, on a dairy farm. Um, my, that was my grandfather's farm, but we lived a half mile away and, and spent basically all of our time on the farm. So we had, we milked Holsteins and uh, had, actually the farm was separated in two places. One was where my grandparents lived, which is the home farm, which is where we milked. Mm -hmm. And then a couple miles away, we had what we called the hill farm, which is actually where our hunting camp was. And uh, we pastured heifers there and we cut hay there. And, and uh, But that's all mountainous. So uh, it was a tough place to, you know, to, to run equipment on. And then because of that, above the field was all the woods and the mountains. It was great deer hunting. So that's how I grew up, and um, there was, you know, everybody where I was seemed, had the same childhood. You know, there was this little farm scattered everywhere, and everybody was farming exactly the same way. Hayed, you know, everything you possibly could during the year, you know, uh, row crop, everything that was in the valley, and uh, that was it. You know, there wasn't a lot of thought to leave things for deer or to do any farming techniques that, that may benefit deer as well. So, uh that was kind of the history of it. I moved away, and we ended up, you know, my grandparents uh, got old. We, we sold the dairy, kept the kept the uh, property, but we sold the cows. 
Well, when I ended up back in Pennsylvania with QDMA, um, you know, my dad was still very much interested in agriculture, and I said, you know what, I would love to, to get back into having some cows. When I worked in Florida, um, I had uh, a few cows on my property there that I would raise for beef. So, uh, you know, I always had that tie to agriculture. I liked being around the animals. So uh, when I got back to Pennsylvania, my dad and I bought some beef animals mm-hmm. and, uh, and got back into doing, you know, our hands in agriculture. But uh, I said, you know what, though, there's, we have learned so much more now about being good managers, you know, from the, the livestock end with regard to rotational grazing, building soil health, and, uh, you know, and leaving cover for wildlife that, you know, if we do this, I don't want to do it the way that, you know, beef farmers used to do where they just continually graze everything right to the ground. Let's be smart about it and improve soil along the way. So sure. we spent a bunch of time together at, at Penn State seminars and at Cornell University seminars and, and other things just to learn about being, you know, good grazers, you know, and how to move animals appropriately with a goal being let's not just raise a calf, but with a goal being hey, let's be good grass farmers and really improve the land that we have. And, oh, by the way, along the way, man, our cattle are the healthiest in our county. So uh, that's kind of how we got back into it and uh, and why I continue to love it today. So over the years and and growing up around the the dairy and, and of course, hunting that property and then coming back, how did your – your position on on cattle on a hunting property change over time? It it really solidified in my mind or made me think about, you know, how they fit into the whole program. And uh, so it certainly helps now as I'm traveling around the country talking with people who have cattle on farms about some of the ways that they can, you know, make sure that they can maximize wildlife benefits. Essentially, I tell people, look, if you are only interested in cattle and that's what you want to maximize, the wildlife are going to suffer. You know, mm-hmm. If you are only interested in wildlife and, uh, you know, do not want to, to put anything toward the cattle, then, uh, then, then don't have them. However, if you are going to have cattle in places where you have wildlife, you know, you, you're not going to maximize the effect for both of them, but you certainly can be smart about how you use those cattle to, to help deer and to minimize any negative impacts to the wildlife end. And, and a perfect example of that is on our farm, all of our pastures, um, I rotationally graze everything, and um, which means you know we take literally as stuff is growing up. I take uh, about the top third, or maybe not even the top third of the plant, and then I move my cows. and, and I have perimeter fence on much of our farm, and uh, literally just use step-in fence posts with single wire, mm-hmm. high wire on reels to move cows, and, uh, and I move them on an average of every three days. So sometimes my cows move every other day, um, but for the most part, about every three days I move them to another piece of the pasture. Because what that does is it allows them to take the tops off the plants, which is basically the energy where they allow them to really grow, and then I move them, and what that means is those plants regrow so quickly. Now, most plants will start growing a new leaf back within two to three days. So if you allow those cows to take a second bite of that plant before it has got those new leaves back and replenished itself, then you are hurting that plant. You're hurting the root system and degrading what's there. So what I do is I, two to three days, get them off that to the next patch and allow that plant to rest and come back, and it comes back so much more quickly. My soil is so much healthier, and the overall quality of that land is way better. Now, the nice thing is, is once you start moving cows like that, they see you coming, and they know, hey, that's the guy that's going to take me to good stuff. Right. So uh, I joke and tell people, you know, I think I could walk our herd of cows from my house you know, to your house, you know, whether you're across the street or across the state, because right. my cows see me come and know, ooh, I like that guy. You know, so I call them, they come running, you know, we move to the next pasture. It's, in some cases, you know, I'm moving our cows a, a half mile or more. So wow. uh, it's not like I'm just moving them across the fence. You so, s- but anyway, uh, that's the, the movement of it and being smart about how I manage uh, that land. And uh, you have to think about it in the form of the land rather than the cows. Um, I can, can greatly help what I have from the wildlife and particularly from a cover end. You know, one thing you say there that makes me chuckle in my head is I think when you were talking about how your how calm your cows were, I, I and there's been often times where I've got permission to go hunt a property where the farmer <laughs> kind of just lets his cows run free graze and, and you step out there in a field in camouflage and they take off like a wild animal. And I, automatically I think, okay, if you're rotational grazing on your, op, on your farm and you're hunting around that, your cows are going to be less likely to 
run across the field kicking and stomping and and spooking your wildlife. So that's that's one benefit that I one big benefit I see with rotational grazing and and keeping your cows docile to your presence. Oh yeah, um, I have I rerun Angus. I have red and, and black Angus, but I have two uh, black Angus bulls that are both big. One is just over a ton, and one is about 2,400 pounds. It is a big animal. Wow. <laughs> well, we're in an equip program here, and I have a crew of, from a local forestry guy who, who's doing some work in the woods for me, removing some invasives. And uh, anyway, last summer, they were running the chainsaw and running a weed eater with a saw blade on it um, in one of the pastures right beside where I had our cows. And uh, they had stepped back into, for some reason, they were near the pasture, but I, my bulls are very docile as well. I have little kids that are around them all the time, so uh, I just wouldn't put up with a, with a nasty bull either. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, they said they're running the saw, and the guys working for this crew are scared to death of cows. But I had assured them mine are okay, they can be around them. So they're working, running that weed eater, not listening, shut it off, turn around, and one of my two bulls is standing within 10 feet of them, watching them. <laughs> just, he's docile. Serious, and he scared the living daylights out of both of them. As they turn, and there's this huge animal right. there. And they said they were too far from the fence to run, you know, but they didn't know where they should stand. So finally, the one guy just kind of talked to him, and he said, "Man, we realized after a minute that he didn't look like he was going to charge." But, uh, <laughs> so now you're right; it's, they're very docile, they're easy to be around, and uh, so that makes it nice. Right, and. One thing you kind of talked about, and and we want to dive in a little bit more because there's there's been a lot of research in in past years about uh, cool season grasses and and namely fescue and some bacteria that grows in that as actually um, inhibits growth and, and putting on pounds for cattle. And you hear a lot of people talking about you know deer eating in pastures and this and that. So can you talk about fescue? And what that is to a deer, and then on your farm, how you've removed fescue, and then what you're using in place of fescue for cool season grasses for grazing. Sure. Um, well, first of all, you know, cool season perennial grasses um, are essentially not good for deer. I mean, and not that they're not they're bad for them, deer just don't like them. You know, they are literally bottom of the barrel preference. So, from a straight deer end, you know, there are many, many better things to plant. However, there are some stuff that we can use for cattle that at least deer will make good use of, too. Mm-hmm. Fescue is not one of them. You know, fescue is used a lot for cattle, and it's great for cattle because, you know, it grows so vigorously and it regrows quickly, and it holds its, you know, uh, growth stages well into the fall or early winter. So that's why cattlemen like it. Now, the endophyte that you're talking about is bad for cows. You know, it, it can make it so that they can't uh, breed back, and it causes all kinds of things. Um, from a deer end, uh, a fescue field is basically a desert. There is nothing there for deer. Mm-hmm. And if deer on your property are eating fescue, that is a sure sign that they are starving. You know, there is because there's literally uh, nothing that they would less prefer than that. So, uh, not that they won't eat it, but if they do eat it, that you know as a manager, you have a lot of work to do because you're in a bad, bad situation. Mm-hmm. So our place, we have zero fescue, none at all, and all of our pastures, we have a we do have cool season grass mixes in them because that's what's great for cattle. So orchard grass and timothy mostly, but they are all mixed with legumes. So every one of them also have red clover and white clover, uh, and in many cases, bird's foot tree foil mixed with it. Mm-hmm. So what that means is from a cattle end, the diverse, diversity in the soil is good anytime. So anytime you have a good stand growing that provides a diversity of species like that, that tends to be healthier for the soil. Um, that's great for the cattle. And at the same time, then, you know, if I had a straight clover field, would it be better for deer? Yes, it would. However, but by having all of that clover in our cattle pastures, at least there is something good there. The deer can feed there on a very regular basis and have some high-quality food. Um, Also, the big part of that, guys, that that we really find helpful is because we rotationally graze, my pastures are never eaten down to the ground. So we always have a lot of cover which is critically important for our fawns in the spring of the year. Um, as you guys know, chiral populations are increasing across the country. Bear populations are in many areas. You know, we have tons of bear, tons of chiral, and tons of bobcat. So uh, I'm convinced where we are, too, that, that black bears actually wreak more havoc on our fawns than, than anything else. But by leaving, you know, a standing uh, cool season grass, even in our pastures, the way that we graze as we go all the way through, man, when our fawns are hitting the ground in mid-May, 
you know, if you can get them to about a month of age, then they can get rid of, of most predators. You know, it's that first four weeks usually that uh, coyotes and bears really get them. Mm-hmm. But after that, they can make it. So by rotation and grazing, I always have tall standing pastures. My cows are getting the best and moving, and I still have two feet or two and a half feet or more of standing vegetation there. So I have phenomenal fawning habitat. Now, if I didn't rotation graze and I let cows eat it to the ground, I would have yeah, some good have fawning habitat in places, but then terrible in others. So that's a huge benefit that we see from that by allowing those cows to just move through rotationally, that I have tremendous fawning habitat through the most critical period the fawns are being born, and then the adult or the mothers can get out in there at times as well, pick through that clover and still have some real high-quality food. I think a couple things in there that people stopped and said, what was the fact that you said you have no fescue and you have a year-round cattle operation, and I think that blew a lot of people away. And I I think because of um, just the the current state of the cattle industry and and just the you know the the ease of fescue in many places um there's the thought of other options just really doesn't cross people's mind but with the right management and techniques and 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 research that you can do you can graze cattle with a rotation and without fescue um throughout the entire year and and you're you're a prime example of that and then that has directly benefited you and your hunting with increases in uh, fawn survival rates. And, and can you just real quickly, and this is probably just an observational thing, um, not necessarily numbers, but on your on your farm, going back to when you're growing up and, and seeing um, fawns during the hunting seasons and such, have you seen an increase, an observational increase um, in fawn recruitment rates during hunting season from, let's say, back in the dairy farm days till now back in the dairy farm days we didn't didn't record any of our observation rates and um that time never even really paid much attention to to what we were seeing you know adults versus fawns Mm -hmm. but uh, we we record harvest and observation data on our farm now and have for the past 15 years Uh, literally every person who hunts every single day he or she hunts records the number of bucks does and fawns they see and the amount of time they spent hunting so I monitor that very, very closely. And um, I can tell you over the past couple of years, uh, we averaged during our hunting season observing about 0. Uh, 6, 0. 0.5 or 0. 0.6 fawns per doe. Um, and I would say that past, over the past couple, which is a huge increase from the few before that, mostly because of we had a, a three- or four-year period where our recruitment went from above 0. 0.7 fawns per doe down, way down, and I'm sure it was directly bare and uh, well, predator related, mostly bear, because we had a huge bear harvest. You know, we killed more bears per square mile over the 2,000 acres that surround us. I talked to all the hunting camps uh, three falls ago. Then we so anyway, we killed more bears than we did bucks in there. Wow! And, uh, you know, bears exist at a much lower density than deer do. So that was just off the charts how many bears we killed. Since then, our fawn recruitment over the last two years has been climbing like crazy again. Um, it actually got to the point, guys, where I never would see a set of twin fawns all summer long, either viewing or on my cameras. And I run cameras year-round. Right, right. So there was that many bears. And actually that fall, I had more bears within bow range of me than I had does within bow range. It was just insane. So <laughs> That's incredible. Much of our, yeah, much of our fawn observation rates and then equates to a fawn recruitment rate really comes from, from predator-related, but... Uh, so anyway, the last two years it has climbed like crazy, and this year uh, there are just fawns everywhere again and twins everywhere. So uh, certainly if I hadn't provided all that cover, I, I don't know if a fawn would have survived on our place. It, uh, it was about that bad. But, wow. man, what a difference all that cover makes, particularly because many of the farmers in my area still continuously graze, so they graze to the ground, you know, and they hay everything, and they're haying right during the time that those fawns need it the most. You know, mm. we do cut some hay, but never when that, or at least to minimize, or maybe one field while those fawns really need it. And, uh, and I make sure that I have plenty of cover in and around it. So uh, that is a, a, a very easy way for a farmer to improve what they're doing from a farming end and have great benefits to the deer end. Very true, very true. Uh, 
Here's a question for you, and I think a lot of people, if you're a hunter, you don't really think of ever having cows. And if you're a cattle farmer, it's kind of hard to say, you want me to tweak my management for the wildlife. But let me let me ask you, what are some of the benefits, and in, you can even talk on the obvious benefits of, of having cattle on a, on a property, but what are some of the benefits for a landowner to have this multi-use cattle and hunting um, on that property? Well, one thing for, for us, because we have cattle, uh, it provides a, you know, an income source for the family, which is good, but it also then means that I have to put some you know, into our cattle operation to, to make sure that our cattle are, are healthy and that we have good land. So what that means is some of the things that, you know, when I'm um, planting new pastures or planting food for cattle, you know, I plant a bunch of food plots for deer as well, but I am able to plant a lot more food because of the cattle land that deer are taking advantage of, you know. So even if it's not planned specifically for deer, um, deer certainly benefit, or the deer using our place, benefit a lot because of the cattle being there and the additional high-quality food that gets planted. So that's one way. Um, if you're in an area, where, you know, when I lived in Florida, um, some of the state lands there that I managed were extremely, extremely dense vegetation, you know, palmetto flatwoods and really just no openings. We had a cattle lease on the state area that I managed, the wildlife management area, and uh, having those cattle there, it actually, their use opened up some areas, some trails that both deer and turkeys used and made phenomenal turkey hunting in some of the areas simply because of having cattle there and knocking some of that vegetation down to provide a diversity of what was there. Um, I see some of that in our place as well. We have one pasture on our farm where the deer or the cattle can get it, uh, into the woods. And, uh, and I'm a big believer of keeping my cows out of the woods um, just because I want to. I'm very interested, you know, in regenerating oaks and other things that we have. So one of them is kind of a brushy pasture. They can get in the wood just a little bit. And uh, I have on more than one occasion hunted those cattle trails through there because you know, with a camera, you know, deer use them on a very regular basis to, to access or to get from the woods down to one of our food plots. So, um, you know, you can take advantage of, of what they provide. Deer love to be on those trails like that as well. So I think that each, each area or each site is a little bit different. But, uh, but that's one of the things that makes, you know, deer hunting or deer management so cool. Uh, if it was a one-size-fits-all recipe, you know, if you guys applied in every place in Missouri and, and I did in Pennsylvania or Michigan or Florida or anywhere else you go, then it would be boring as heck. Nobody would want to do it. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you kind of take your site-specific conditions, either with, soils or elevation or winter severity or whatever and just tailor a management program to fit your situation and what you like to do um that's one of the coolest things about managing deer and one of the reasons you know that so many people just get into it you can do the same thing you know by having cows there figure out what works best within your situation it may not be what works best for me or somebody else but if that's what works best for you hey go with it and uh, and reap all the benefits that's that that is so wonderful to hear you know that was my next question for you was um and i'll give you my example of that last i think it was last week i went in and uh talked to our soil and water um, conservationist there and was talking about some of the benefits and and programs they have for wildlife for basically a multi-use property like we're talking and what he said was first thing he goes can your cattle get in the woods and i said only in a few places. He goes, that's one. the first program we usually sign people up for is, is fencing the cattle out of the woods. So I was, I was encouraged to hear you say that. And I think for, for the guys out there that are listening that are like, okay, how, how we have cattle, how can we benefit? That's the number one Kip just told you. Or one of the most important things is getting your cattle out of the woods. No, I, I think that that is huge. I have traveled throughout the Midwest and, and just seen some of the coolest deer properties in the country. And people think of the Midwest as all oh, this food, you know, and these little fingers of cover. And, but then I've seen many of those places as well that in the fall, as soon as all those beans and corn are gone, there's nothing to eat. All those deer go to the woods, and in those little fingers of wood, if cattle have been in there, there is no cover there. So those deer go from, you know, a smorgasbord during the summer, you know, in a luxury hotel, you know, to poverty, you know, in the yeah. fall and winter. So, yeah, it- I mean, that's. And not I think a good situation or not what you want, you know, if you're trying to, to manage deer or have a good deer hunting situation. So, um, yeah, that cows out of the woods is a, is a big deal here, there, and, and everywhere in between. Certainly agree with that. And, and we've been on many properties 
um, and even one yesterday where it wasn't even the current landowner who had cattle in the timber. It was years ago from from owners prior that he had cattle in the timber and ran ran them through there, and the timber still had that very open effect, the very low um, amount of underbrush growing, re-sprouts and everything. So the the multiple multiple years down the road, you were still seeing the effects of cattle in the timber. And you know, if you're one of those people, you're like, well, I don't I don't have cows in my timber now, but it kind of looks like I do. You need to do some management. Um, obviously, you're not fencing cattle cattle out, but you know that might be open up the canopy, doing some prescribed fire to get that regeneration kind of kicked back in, and um, and moving on that way. Yeah, you think about it. If you get too many deer, you see that browse line and the uh, sure. habitat. If too many deer can do it, now think about when you had a bunch of cows. You know they can greatly, greatly exaggerate the negative benefits of that. So you know. Point. Kip, when I was growing up, of course, as we said, I was on a cattle farm. I had this very negative opinion. Of course, our cows were able to graze in the woods, and we had very much a, a graze line. You could almost – it kind of reminded you of a high fence area because there was really nothing growing below head high on a cattle through the timber and out in the pasture. And I had this very negative opinion of – cattle and wildlife relationship and now going out and seeing these different successful farms and rotational graze i'm like and and there's a lot of research that shows cattle benefiting uh game birds like quail and uh and turkey poults and i'm like you know maybe there's something to this it, it, have you had that same transition in your career as as kind of a negative of cattle to wildlife and then now as we're talking that they've been very beneficial for each other there's certainly more talk now about being beneficial. Um, lots and lots of negative uh, in the past, and uh, and mostly because you know there's not a lot of overlap or a lot of interest, I guess, between serious deer hunters, you know, and serious cattle ranchers. And uh, so, if you were, you know, the old way of, of managing cows, you know, just really was not good for almost all wildlife species. <laughs> so you don't see a whole bunch of overlap. And there's actually, as I travel the country, many people. You know, while being in an agricultural area, so I'm always looking at the cows that are there or the horses or what folks are doing. You know, and we have a lot of QDMA members who also have cattle. And uh, so, you know, I love to, to pick their brain and talk to them. And, and I've been on a couple properties in, in the Midwest where our members are asking me about deer, and then I'm following up with answers about or, uh, questions about cattle. And they've asked me, you know, why are you so interested? And I said, you know, because, you know, this is a passion of mine as well. You know, I want to know how you do this. And so um, I think, yes. Today, there's much more uh, discussion of, of how cattle can be used in a positive manner, and uh, but a lot of it comes down to good management. Get them out of the woods, fence them out of the, the creeks, you know, don't let them destroy all that creekside vegetation. So as people, even ranchers or farmers, start to do that, you know, in many cases, they start to see some of the benefits toward wildlife, you know, whether they're even a hunter or not. You know, suddenly, you know, there's more there's more birds, or I see more wildlife, or, or whatever. So that often starts their progression down that path. Hey, you know what? Even if I'm not a huge hunter, you know, at heart, I think it's pretty cool that I'm doing something that's beneficial, not only for my cattle, but for something else. So if you are a hunter as well, you know, you can't help but see the positive impacts on, uh, on deer and other wildlife if you start managing uh, that resource good. And a lot of times, you know, it's not just about, it's not because cattle is a magical animal. It's because you're being a good steward of the natural resources, you know, of the land. And, uh, and uh, then you start seeing some of those benefits. So no doubt more research is being looking at today how to do better by the soil or by the land. In many cases, precipitated because of livestock. Mm -hmm. So uh, then along that discussion, you end up with more beneficial talk about, you know, how farmers or ranchers, can also be good stewards of natural resources and help wildlife. So, and I think that's a good thing. That's a, that's a, that's a good thing for the future. Yeah, absolutely. And and I know you're a big fan of doing your own personal research. And Adam and I are, are as well. And we we tend to kind of go back and read and and about you know pre-settlement times and and what it looked like in the landscape and and how you know the buffalo used to roam and and the way they did that, the way they they fed was almost in a uh, what we would call now a, a rotational grazing um, manner, and so they're eating a little bit and moving on, eating a little bit in a in a dense you know herd and moving on. And after that, you talk you know you read other animals benefited from that, other wild animals and plant species benefited from them coming through, moving quickly, and you know deer, quail, 
everything kind of followed those those herds um, to a certain extent. But it was a very, very um, beneficial relationship between having herbivores in the environment and the, the relationships that they had with other um, game animals. And the, the, you're kind of – the way your program is set up is really – um, paralleling that of just natural concepts and natural resources and managing them in a way that benefits other species. And, you know, you've got a farm, you've got cattle, and, yeah, they're within fences and, and, and they're limited, but you're still replicating that and you're seeing the benefits from other species. And I think, you know, it's kind of that, that full circle that, you know, we, we might have gotten away from the way things naturally work over, over many years and, uh, you know, through education, through research, we're getting back to that. And it's just really encouraging to see the full circle effect of it. And, um, you know, that a lot of other people, if they're doing the research and we're, and we're talking about it, it's going to get out there. And, you know, I think um, the improvements can be hopefully a little bit quicker in, in habitat and in such by working with herbivores and, and you know, the, the cattle um and benefiting hunting and the game species. That's right. We certainly try to, to emulate that, you know, obviously at a very small scale, but uh, a good example of that, you know, and how that worked in nature and then how we do it here as our cattle go through and we move them on, you know, uh, the manure that's left, you know, many of the flies that we have that are just irritants to us take a few days, you know, they, they land there, the legs, their eggs take a while to hatch. And then, you know, those flies in a continuous grazing situation, you know, we're just everywhere around the cattle. So they're using, you know, insecticides and all kinds of things to clear them up. Well, by rotationally grazing, they step, then they're gone to the next pasture. And then either we have some chickens here at the house or on a farm, you know, turkeys all over. Turkeys will go through, distribute those manure piles, use them as food, and then doing so, interrupt that egg cycle. So we don't end up with nearly the flies around our cattle, which is a good thing. But even more importantly for me, which means those flies aren't around all of the deer, you know, that use those fields and our food plots around the cattle as well. So that means they're not irritating the deer, which the deer are less stressed. They're growing better. So there's lots and lots of benefits. So that's exactly how it worked with the bison herds and that in the wild. And uh, at a very small scale, we try to do that. And uh, it makes me feel a little good hoping that, uh, that, you know, our deer appreciate, you know, some of the relief from the insects. That is very cool to hear, Kip, and it sounds like I, I can't wait. Hopefully there's one day that we can be up there in PA and see your operation because that's, that's exactly what we're striving to do on my family farm, and I think that's just I, I think that's the message that a lot of people haven't heard, and I think if they hear it, um, they can maybe turn their mindset and their management and say, you know what, maybe, maybe there is this, this relationship that I can benefit both my cattle and my in the wildlife. So my, my guess, one of my final questions for you is you have a landowner with cattle and then you also have his son who's a diehard wildlife hunter and manager. And so a lot of times you get this question, is it even possible? And now I want you to answer explaining how it is possible that you can manage both. I think it, it absolutely is possible. Um, I think you have to recognize that you, you're not going to maximize either end of it, but you certainly can get almost to the maximum for both um, if you're smart with it. And, uh, and a lot of it starts with, hey, let's be a good steward of that soil and of the cover that's on it. And um, if you think about that in your mind first, you're going to do a much better job from a, soil or from a vegetation management standpoint for the cattle, and that, and that includes vocational grazing, you know, kind of getting rid of, the, of tilling anything or, you know, or moving to a no-till situation, which benefits cattle and deer because of the improvements of that soil. So, uh, so I guess to some extent, the big thing is, yes, recognize you're not going to maximize either end, but be a good steward of the soil and the vegetation that's there. And uh, because if you're continuously grazing, that's not being a good steward of the vegetation or the, the soil. So it starts with that, and then you'll see benefits for the cattle. You can see tremendous benefits from the deer end, and then uh, just figure out how you want to intertwine the two that you either need, you know, to make the, the bottom line so that you can continue to own the land. Because let's face it, a lot of people couldn't own the land to hunt on if they didn't have the cattle operation. You know, if you have the opportunity where you don't need the resources or the cattle and you just want to maximize hunting, well, then don't worry about it. You can still get a lot of the benefits, you know, that you would have with the cows there. 
might not have them, but that's not the reality for most people. So be very smart about it, but think about it from a vegetation end, and then uh, that's the way to get absolutely the most from for both the cattle and the deer. I think that's a great point by by choice or just by default. You know, a lot of people are, are put into that situation where, well, I, I have to have the income of the cattle to either retain the property and and just keep it up and and, and you know provide for their family, which is a very very real situation um, that a lot of people find themselves in, and and it's just encouraging for them to to know and hear that there are options out there to improve both cattle and a hunting operation. And um, I think I think you've covered it very very well. And I think Kip, I already know what we're going to talk about at the national convention next month. I can't wait. Uh, I am super excited uh, that, that you guys are going to be there and be part of it. So, uh, you guys are going to be a great addition uh, to our the educational staff. So uh, thank you for agreeing to come and sharing uh, your knowledge and experience with us. So uh, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you, talking, and uh, we certainly can talk cows or deer or, or anything in between. And uh, you guys are welcome uh, to my place anytime. Uh, I'd love to show you around and would certainly welcome uh, any tips that you guys could give me to, uh, to improve what we have here as well. Well, we appreciate that, Kip. We can't wait to uh, come up and see that operation. We can't wait for the National Convention and hanging out with everybody and talking. And We really appreciate you coming on this week and, and sharing your knowledge on deer and cattle and that relationship. So thanks for joining us, and uh, hopefully we can catch back up sometime in the coming months and talk nothing but deer. But as, uh, until that point, uh, thanks for coming on. All right, sounds great. You guys have a great day. Thanks, Kip. We'll see ya. Well, how cool was that? Uh, I'm, you know, over the years, Adam, we've talked about how our families, you know, the cattle operations have really just inhibited us. But through a lot of research, really in the last year and a half, we have taken that line of thinking and and reversed it by pursuing honestly the the truth and 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 different management techniques like that's you know we always talk about like change and when a landowner you know may be apprehensive of, of change on his property and whether you know he's not a big fan of cutting trees but you know that's actually the best you know management technique for his property that needs to be done don't be afraid of of changing what you're doing and that's kind of the situation you know our families are in you know they're in this this um, grazing very very hard on pastures and not doing a, a great job of rotating or not doing it when it needs to be done, and you know we can't be afraid to change try, that. Try new things. Exactly. I think uh, a lot of times we get stuck, and it's easy to get stuck in the same rhythm over and over year after year. But I think if we're really striving to be better managers and better. Uh, overall habitat guys um, it's it's important especially for me I'll just speak on my by myself but selfish it, it, that it's important for me to try new things and and try to always ask myself and I, I've got to where maybe I do this too much but I always try to ask myself but why? why why do we do it like this and is there a better way and and I think by trying to motivate myself to be a lifetime learner to always try new things and of course you're going to fail when you're trying these new things but you're going to not not every failure in habitat management is bad it's just it's a change and a lot of times a change is better than no change and so for me hearing that and you know you talked about the our our family operation but you know for a for a large part of my life i've been negative towards cows and the wildlife relationship that they have but in the last five years i've kind of come almost full circle as very far i hate to say left or right in today's society but very far over in this field of saying okay no cows one day the family farm is not going to have cows it's going to be a wreck property it's going to be strictly for hunting but then the other side of that is, as we start to research more and, and you and I read more at night, and this is why we encourage everybody to, to find a, a knowledgeable resource and, and multiple resources. Like our podcast. Yeah, like our podcast and every, <laughs> and a lot of stuff the QDMA puts out. And uh, just finding those articles, those magazines, those books, and try new things. And try to find that relationship or that management technique to where you can benefit. Maybe 
for me, I'm speaking to that guy that was that was myself at 14 years old. Of maybe maybe you're hunting your grandpa's farm or your dad's farm, and you're like, oh, I cannot stand these cows. Maybe you need to start talking to him, and and of course using a uh, a nice approach. Um, and I'm speaking from experience on that and how not to do it, but I'll, I'll tell you how to do it now that I've, that I've messed it up over the years and had many, many arguments with dad about the cows and the, and the wildlife, but maybe you need to start researching and, and finding these studies that show that cows are more benefited in this new way of thinking. And, and, uh, that basically that means at the end of the day, that means more money in, in the pocket of the landowner of the cattle guy. And I think that's important to him, obviously, but by using these management techniques that Kip was talking about, you can convert that to more income in his pocket, but more wildlife for you to hunt. I think that's a great point. And, and it's all about doing your homework and, and doing the research and then presenting it to whether it's your dad or your, your grandpa, whoever it is, it might even be the landowner you lease from about, you know, Hey, this is a different approach. I don't know if you've thought about this, but I was just doing some research one day and, and stumbled um, upon it. And I, I think it might be, you know, benefit you and the property. And, you know, it's not going to just benefit you if, you if you're starting to try and do a, a rotational um, grazing uh, routine. Because as Kip said, and we've seen it um, in, in, in our research, the gains on these cattle are amazing. They're gaining weight and times where most cattle don't, and they're leaving the land better Yes, because of the grazing techniques that are used. And and really, that's what we're all here to do is is leave the land better than we found it and improve it. And if you can make money doing that and improve hunting, I don't see the negative. But it takes research, it takes homework, it takes strategy and time for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Don't get down because, you know, it's not happening overnight. Even everything in habitat management takes time, whether it's the food plots, takes time to germinate, takes time for, you know, the plants to make a pod. Same thing with trees. But this is going to take time, too, to change that whole mindset that, okay, maybe this grazing technique that you have currently is not the best option. Let's let's do some research. Let's figure it out and and present it. And if it goes forward, I'm excited for you because we have we're in the process basically mm-hmm. of uh, the to, transition to, time guess, <laughs> time in our lives. We haven't I haven't been able to make it back to the family farm to really dive in and help Dad with the operation. But now I'm planning on it, and I I can't tell you how excited I am for that. But here's my tip for for the people that are in this in this uh, situation where you you really want to get your dad or your grandpa to, to change up and or even be a little bit more open-minded to this new idea. And here's the tip that I have, and this is what really helped me on bringing it to dad and having an option or even having a conversation about it. Entertaining the talk. Yeah, a lot of times if you – if you're talking to a guy like if let's just say I'll, I'll just be straightforward and I'll say my dad I'm, we're having this conversation. If I came to him and said, "Hey, I want to help. I'm, I think we ought to fence the cows off of this pasture for a while and let it." It automatically you the conversation's over because he's already checked out. He's like, "I'm not going to let this guy tell me how to raise cows." But what I did, and this is what everybody should do if they're trying trying to convert this, is find the the benefits to him before you do it. And for dad, that was the benefit is more income. The other benefit is quail. And there's a lot of research that shows that the quail cattle relationship is, is I guess, preferred. Um, the, the cattle trampling and the cattle trails in these pastures, but not grazing it all the way down, is, is causing an increase in quail numbers. And so dad growing up quail hunting and seeing the populations plummet, and now he can't quail hunt. He had a bird dog for first, I don't know, 15 years of my life. He had a bird dog, and now he doesn't have one. And so finding that, that niche or that thing that is a benefit to him is is the way to make this approach and, and get to this cattle-wildlife relationship. So, 
And I think that's that's a great point to be able to reach that person where they're at and how it's going to benefit. Um, and and honestly, I I think as we're wrapping this up, you know, everyone, whether it's you listening right now, or you have a buddy that's a hunting buddy, or or just someone, you probably know someone who can benefit from this. And this is not just a, a personal gain, but this is remember a land improvement, enhancing conservation um, technique and multiple techniques for multi-use properties, but you know someone out there who can benefit from this talk, this education, and you know this is it's kind of a new way of thinking, and uh, we want to be able to get it out there um, to everyone who can benefit from it. So if you've got that person in mind, share it with them. Let them know that there's options out there. You know, status quo of of just ma- cattle management the way it is, or management on your farm. You know, there's options, and we want to be able to talk educatedly and share that with people and we're very fortunate that was kip um extremely knowledgeable guy who's done a lot of research on his own and on his personal farm has shared that with us and getting that information out there um, is going to help a lot of people so if you know someone in mind um share it with them let them know that you know again there's options out there here's the stuff here's how it can benefit go i think of you know i've been a huge I guess I've always had a lot of respect for Kip and I've heard him talk numerous times and he's, and it's always about deer. Obviously that's what he does for a living. But when I found out that he had, I think it was an Instagram post where he said something about rotational grazing. And and of course that is right in the middle of when we're always talking about it um, here in the last couple of months. And I'm like, wait, Kip does rotational grazing. And then we talked to him on a phone a couple of days after that. And it was like, we, we have to have you on the podcast because this is something that, is not talked about a lot, especially not in the wildlife world. And f- to come from such a knowledgeable source like Kip in the QDMA is like, okay, this is this is key. We got to get him on the podcast. So I loved it. That might be my favorite podcast yet, even though um, I've loved them all. That is something that really hits me right in the right in the feel goods, if you if you will, about <laughs> about cattle and wildlife relationships. So. Um, I will make a shout out to the last, uh, you know, we encourage you to, if you're listening on iTunes to go give us a, a review and give us some stars, hopefully five stars. If you're going to leave one star, just don't even bother. But (laughs) (laughs) if, if you're going to give us, please give us a review. And, uh, there was a a review this last week, really nice, encouraging review. So we encourage you to do that for us. Um, if you, if you find this, um, useful. I think that about wraps it up for this for this podcast and i i'm i'm very grateful because again a very knowledgeable source was able to come on but hopefully this is just the beginning of the techniques that we're able to share through land and legacy and again this is something that that we're pursuing um and continuing our education on because there's a lot of people out there who can benefit from it and you know this is this land management is not just a necessarily a deer specific thing. I hope it's not. I really right. hope it's not. When whenever you're thinking habitat land management and years down the road, like if you're just thinking deer, I encourage you to step out, take a step back, and think, okay, what what else is benefiting from this, and 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 try and build upon that. Like for us, it's always been cattle, wildlife. And to now see the benefits of both has been very encouraging to say, okay, this is the direction we need to head. Not only is it beneficial, beneficial, beneficial to the cattle and the and the owner operator, but also beneficial to the wildlife, beneficial to me, and beneficial to the environment, beneficial to soil health. There's just so the list goes on and on. That's what's so exciting. That's why I keep rambling about this because it is so exciting to hear Kip talk about it and to know the direction we're headed on the farm. It's just oh. I can't even – okay, take it, take it. I got it. it. I got it. Obviously, we're, we're deer hunters um, through and through. But, again, you know, we're going to chase them every fall. But you know, management doesn't happen during the fall as much as it does outside of the season. And that's the same thing um, that, you, that you see the relationships between different uh, populations and, and ecosystems kind of coming together and working all as one when you're, when you're out there working the land and um, – Again, take a step back and, and 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 do a little bit of research. See what what the management may do for other animals. Um, and yeah, you might not be able to chase them with a, a, 
a bow and arrow or whatever, but I promise if you're, if you're educated on it, it's going to make you feel good. And it's going to, and it's going to let you know, okay, I am doing good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting in the time I'm, I'm putting in money, but I'm, I'm, I am benefiting, um, more than just deer. And, uh, that's going to help for future generations and to, to come. So, all right, I think we're I think we're done rambling. Are you, are you good? Uh, there's so much more I want to talk about that Kip talked that Kip mentioned, but we'll save it for next time. Yeah, there. so go ahead. Uh, I think uh, I think it was a great episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully, I don't. Not real sure. Well, next week we may be talking to another guest, or we may be talking about a recent consulting trip with. Uh, some other, oh, there's so much more I could talk about on that, but so much diversity on that property. But I, I better not open that can of worms or I'll be here another 20 minutes talking about it. But it's an exciting time for us, and uh, hopefully you enjoyed it, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for Bye. listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you want to see more, check us out at landlegacy.tv or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Take pride in knowing that God has called us in Genesis 2-4 to work and take care of the land. So keeping that in mind, remember to do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God.